Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. Um, it's a warm, sunny morning in San Francisco, September the 20th, 2021. And the headlines today are um, familiarly uncomfortable, familiarly revolutionary, I guess, in some ways. Um, one of the headlines is about, uh, from the New York Times, Biden's um, uh, presidential, entire presidential agenda now rests on what they're calling his expansive spending bill. It's an attempt, I guess, in, in some ways, Joe Biden to redraw, to rewrite, to reinvent the social contract between the U.S. government and the U.S. people. It's going to be interesting to see how it gets played out. But it is very ambitious in, in its attempt to restructure American capitalism. Uh, and it's not surprising because, as the New York Times reports, the, the tax system in America is really rotten. One headline today about how the accounting giants craft favorable tax rules from inside government. In other words, the government, the people writing the tax rules are the accountants. Surprise, surprise, in this uh, rotten capitalism that is developing or has developed in the United States. Um, uh, 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 Andrew Ross Sorkin, one of the best economic writers in the Times, has this, how tax giants write their own rules. Um, meanwhile, uh, the, the, the tech hurricane, the tech furor continues. Headline in the Post today about how the tech giants are quietly buying up dozens of companies a year. Biden administration apparently is finally noticing, waking up, Sleepy Joe, I hope he's not asleep at the wheel all the time. And his new attempt to, to, to write the social contract, of course, includes revisions on how we're supposed to relate to our tech giants, uh, particularly Facebook headlines today. As always, every day, Facebook continues to lie and a new report suggesting that they found all this stuff about how Instagram in particular was wrecking the mental life of young women. Uh, but they didn't tell anyone. Surprise, surprise. Um, the the cultural assault on expertise continues. Uh, the old 20th century expertise uh, culture is falling apart. Again, uh, another headline, an all-amateur astronaut crew splashes down at the Atlantic. Everything is changing. Everything is up for grabs in this new order. Um, and on the left, uh, people like Owen Jones, who's very imaginative, believes that the millennial and Generation Z have turned their back on capitalism. Perhaps we're back, at least according to a guy like uh, Owen Jones, uh, we are back uh, in 1917. Meanwhile, the old, uh, I guess, internationalist order, people like Anne-Marie Slaughter, who's actually going to be on the show in a couple of weeks, believe that Joe Biden should not only be rewriting the social contract with the U.S. people, but with the international order itself. Everything is changing, even the unions. Um, in Joe Biden's attempt to, to, to restructure the nature of things, apparently the Democrats are slipping pro-union provisions into the spending bill, trying to resurrect American unions. In other words, welcome to the 2020s. It's the age 
or the raging 2020s or the age of rage, at least according to my guest today, a very familiar name to many of you, familiar with me as well. He and I have been on panels all over the world together. Alec Ross, the raging 2020s. Alec, uh, talking to me from um, Baltimore, where he divides his time with Bologna. Alec, um, all those headlines, sorry to bore you all with them, but uh, what do they all tell us? What do they all add up to? You, you talk a lot in your new book about this need for a social or a, a, a rewritten social contract. What they tell us is that our social contract is in shreds. Uh, you know, <clears throat> I think that there's a there's a total disequilibrium right now. The relationship between government, citizens, and businesses. You know, in order for capitalism to work, there needs to be some sense of equilibrium. And right now, we see that there's absolutely no equilibrium. It actually it reminds me of this period, Andrew, that I know you'll be familiar with, the Engels Pause, which was from about 1800 to 1840. During yeah, which we you're right thinking, about the. I, I like this phrase, the Engels pause. Of course, referring to Friedrich Engels, uh, you you refer to it a lot in the book, The Raging Twenties. Yeah, I mean, we saw this period of industrialization where labor went from farm to factory, uh, from countryside to city, but we didn't rewrite our our social contracts. So this was the sort of industrialization of the Charles Dickens novels, eleven year olds losing their fingers uh, in the factories. You know soot in the air and dirty water. And so we saw all this technology-driven change, um, but people weren't necessarily, unless you were an owner of capital, you weren't any better off for it. And I think we're in sort of an Engels pause for the 21st century. So I think we're in a period of remarkable disequilibrium in the relationship between state capital and labor. Uh, Alec, you write a lot about social contracts. Are you a, a social contract theorist in the tradition of, of Rousseau or Hobbes or Locke, who is your um, model for conceptualizing social contracts? No, I'm absolutely not a social contract theorist. You know, I have a weird background where I was a, I was a student of medieval history uh, under Umberto Eco at the University of Bologna and then at Northwestern University. But then I went into the world of technology. So I take, I think, a little bit of an interdisciplinary view of this content. And, you know, I think we can draw from the past to inform our views of the present. But I, I, I am not somebody who spent the last 30 years of my life in the library stacks checking the footnotes in social contract theory. I'm an enthusiast, uh, but not, not an academic immersed in it. Yeah, and, and, and I don't think I articulated that question correctly. I'm, I'm curious as to how you think of the origins of social contracts. A few months ago, we had my my my, my friend David Ransomman, the professor of political uh, theory at the University of Cambridge, on the show, an expert on Hobbes. In fact, he's obsessed with Hobbes. He even believes that Hobbes can educate us, or had educated us, about Donald Trump. Hobbes was, of course, the father figure of modern social contract theory, suggesting that social contracts are born in fear. Um, I, I'm curious because you, 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 you talk a lot about these social contracts in your book. How do they get written? Are they formal, informal? Do they exist in our heads? Do they have to be written down? So they're both. So look, if you were to go to the first social contract, I, am, I think the first social contract was written 
when humankind was newly mobile on two feet and figured out that they could stave off predators, that humans could stave off predators if they banded together. And in banding together, uh, part of what you had to do is collaborate and coordinate in the, in the common self-interest rather than just optimizing for yourself to stave off the saber-toothed tigers. I don't think anything was written down. So that's kind of Hobbesian. Life was uh, brutal and short, and so we got together in order to uh, make our lives a little better. And, and then it becomes codified both formally and informally. We saw it during feudalism where, you know, the crown, our monarchs, you know, with the, with the crowns on their heads, said, you know what, I can't personally manage all of the lands in my kingdom. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give the right of administration to the, to, um, the elites, to you know, a sub-royalty. And in turn, they're going to pay me taxes and they're they gonna give me fealty and they are, they are conscripted to work for me militarily if we go into war. Then the peasants had a sort of deal with with the elite, where they were obliged to live on the land of their lords in exchange for protection and a percentage of the crops. So the, the, the social contract, I would argue, has existed in written and unwritten form forever. But for us now in the 2020s, we need it in ink. So in the same way in which industrialization got off to a miserable start for for you know the plebeians, for those who weren't the owners of capital, the way it was eventually fixed was through law and regulation, regulatory and statutory action. So ink on paper that then governed the behavior of, of businesses and of citizens. And that's and so in order for us to have a revised social contract, it does have to materially result in something in ink on paper that becomes law or regulation. Uh, Alec, a few weeks ago, and I'm sure you're very familiar with his work, Adrian Waldridge is, is one of the best thinkers and writers, journalists, historians in the UK. He has a new book out, The Aristocracy of Talent, How Meritocracy Made the Modern World. Um, do you think that one of the cry and, 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 and Waldridge is very concerned with the current unaccountability of the Western elite. Do you think one of the problems with this flux, what you call the Engels gap in, um, in, in, in the social contract, is that the elite is no longer accountable. No one's taking responsibility for the world that is evolving in front of our eyes. Is that fair? I think it is fair. And I think it's also one important thing that I think is important to recognize is that as recently as 30 years ago, Andrew, someone could become elite in a small town, in a medium-sized city. You know, all of these cities in the United States or in the United Kingdom with 50,000 or more people had the headquarters of an important business. But then because of the onset of shareholder capital, uh, capitalism, then because everybody was optimizing in a sort of race to, the zero, race to the bottom in terms of tax, what we found was the hollowing out of these communities where there were no elites. And as such, the son of the CEO did not go to school with the daughter of the janitor. So we saw this distancing, not just, not just spiritually, but physically from the elites and the non-elites. And, and, and you're a personal example of that, brought up in what West Virginia, now splitting your time between Baltimore and Bologna. Is this simply the consequence of globalization of these, these impersonal economic forces? It is, it is an example of it, and I'm a perfect example of it. You know, look, I grew up going to, you know, the local schools in the 
coal-filled hills of West Virginia. I worked on a beer truck and as a midnight janitor to help put myself yeah, through university. Yeah, you got some university. great stuff in the book about that, about your fellow workers on the beer truck. It was uh, very interesting. That. Thank you. But I'm not in West Virginia anymore. I'm not. Why? Because there are no opportunities there. There's no, there's no economic opportunity. So what do I do? I do the very predictable thing. I move to the coast. I live in Baltimore, Maryland. I live a transatlantic life. I'm much, you're much more likely to find me in London or Berlin or in Milan than you are to find me in the interior of the United States. And there are lots of reasons behind that, but reasons number one, two, and three are globalization. Your book, uh, Alec, just to remind everyone, is called The Raging 2020s, Companies, Countries, People, and the Fight for Our Future. Um, and you come across this title um, very concretely, The Raging 2020s, you suggest is a consequence of the the rage, the common rage uh, that exists culturally today because of the Engels gap, because the social, the old social contract has broken down. You write, um, and the new one hasn't emerged. It's 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 a Marxian, very Marxian concept. Um, tell me about this rage. Is it the rage of Trump, of Berlusconi, of um, of, of Putin? Uh, how, how how do you um, identify and describe this general rage? Well, look, I'll, I'll just speak about it very personally. You know, let's go back to the coal-filled hills of West Virginia where I grew up. When I was growing up in the 1970s and 80s, it was sort of, the politics were sort of union Democrat. You know, it was Labor Party politics. It was culturally centrist and economically liberal. And then what eventually happened was after decades of stagnation, of economic stagnation, or even worse, of of a decrease in economic well-being, we saw radicalization. And how did that radicalization take place? The radicalization took place, yes, in part because of the lack of economic opportunity, but also because, and Andrew, you've written a lot about this, suddenly people who lend themselves to radicalization are being fed content from social media platforms that are just, that are, that are drawing out their very worst instincts. And Donald Trump was a genius in this respect. What he did, he had this, you know, if you think about Make America Great Again, from a political theory standpoint, it's palingenesis. It's the evocation of a utopian past that may or may not have existed before. And what Donald Trump effectively said to the emasculated, uh, non-university educated white guys uh, who dominate states like West Virginia's, it's not your fault. It's the fault of Mexicans. It's the fault of Muslims. It's the fault of, you know, a president from Kenya. And the rage that produce, that is produced through a combination of economic factors and then radicalization through the information environment, that's, at least in the United States, that is what has produced it in my opinion. Is this the dying, is this the, the cry of a dying class, Alec? Uh, I mean, that Marx was an expert on that. We had, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with her work, Ruth Ben-Giat is a, an, a, an authority on contemporary Amer uh, Italian history. She has a wonderful new book out, big, very successful book, Strong Men, in which she connects Trump with a lot of uh, strong men throughout history, particularly uh, Mussolini and, and Berlusconi, and you're an expert on Italian culture and politics. 
is this rage essentially a male rage, a male yes. rage against the the disappearance of the old industrial world? And 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 why should we worry because it's disappearing? Yeah. So yes. So they draw the women in, but this is an overwhelmingly hyper masculine form of rage. You know, in the United States, it's Trump. In Brazil, it's Bolsonaro. In the Philippines, it's Duterte. In Italy, it was Berlusconi. Now it's Salvini. They're all the same. They're these hyper-masculine uh, figures who, the, who the, again, the emasculated working-class white man identifies with. And they are championing the behavior and beliefs of these people. And to your question of should we care, well, first of all, I don't think that we should bend our politics in a way that that creates sort of distortions so that, you know, God forbid, an uneducated, you know, working class white guy from the hills of West Virginia can't compete against, you know, an Indian immigrant who's worked their tails off to compete and succeed. I do think that there's some stiff medicine that needs to be taken in these communities, you know, the, the community that I come from. Um, but it's a lot easier, frankly, uh, politically, for them to latch onto the idea that something's not their fault than for them to latch onto the idea that, oh my goodness, you know, maybe I should make sure that my kids are better, better educated than I am. Oh my goodness, you know, maybe I should not drink that second six pack of beer or, you know, dive into that new bottle of pills. So there's, there's, there's a lot behind this. Um, but I do ultimately think that there is a reckoning taking place in these communities, because after four years of Trump, they were no better off. I was. I'm in the 1%. I was better off. I got a tax cut. None of these got, but, guys but, got but tax cuts. But the cut. reckoning is not just for the white working class. It's for everyone. I mentioned uh, uh, Anne-Marie uh, Slaughter, example of this old foreign policy elite uh, in Washington trying to m make ma maintain their own relevancy. You yourself... Um, uh, uh, Alec, uh, an example, maybe not of an older elite like uh, Slaughter, but a younger one. You work for Hillary Clinton and then Obama. You're an expert on innovation. How does your class, your globalized class that spends its life shuttling between Bologna and Baltimore in, in, in first class uh, airlines, uh, how, how, how do you need to change? Well, you know, look, I think the first thing is if you look at both the book that Anne-Marie Slaughter has coming out called Renewal. Yeah, and I'm going to talk to her about that book. I want to be fair to her. I mean, I'm not picking yeah. on her, but no, no, I just no, no, found no. that headline. No, no, no. I, I get it. But part of what I, to be responsive to your question is Anne-Marie Slaughter's book Renewal and my book, The Raging 2020s, I think set, spells it out pretty explicitly. So, for example, there's a lot on tax, Right. Yeah. So let's just be very transactional. Let's not be ooey gooey and conceptual. Let's be very transactional. We should pay more taxes. It's ridiculous that I pay a lower percentage of my taxes than, you know, I would have if I were probably if I were still working on the beer truck and if I were a teamster. Um because Instead of just my labor being taxed, the appreciation of my capital is being taxed. Yeah, and your uh, and your chapter on uh, taxes in the book was particularly good. You have some wonderful anecdotes about the sale of, of leather belts in Italy and its impact on Google. You, you you really reveal how rotten the tax system is globally. Well, and look, that's the start, Andrew. If you're like, oh, well, what should we do? It's not. We don't need to go to psychologists and you know grieve for our guilt. For having done well. No, 
let's just pay more taxes. Let's actually pay, pay our fair share so that the taxes that we pay can be invested in infrastructure, in education, in an affordable public health care system, in access to education. So that I, you know, I really believe it's a terribly boring and complicated topic, but I do believe tax is a sort of skeleton key for unlocking um, a lot of the solutions to actually making capitalism work right now. Uh, I, I like the fact that you referred in the book quite a lot to Sarah Horowitz, um, who's someone else has been on the show. Uh, you talk about reinventing the idea of unions in our age of the precariat, in the age of Uber drivers and Lyft drivers, where people don't have, quote unquote, full time jobs. How are we going to reinvent labor, Alec? Well, let me say first that my my perspective is informed from two very different experiences. One, working shoulder to shoulder with Teamsters on a beer truck and then being a member of the teachers union in inner city Baltimore. And I saw the good and I saw the bad. You know, I think that the Teamsters that I worked with on the beer truck were as hardworking as anybody on planet Earth. And so they hard drinking, right? Well, they, 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 would, they could drink it and they could deliver it. But then, you know, just to be honest, like the teachers union was awful, Andrew. I mean, truly awful. <laughs> I mean, you had sex with your 14-year-old student. Okay, we'll protect you. You're a heroin addict and you're shooting up in the hallway. Um, it's okay. We'll protect you. You know, so they literally were protecting the bottom 5%, you know, those one out of 20 teachers who have no business being in front of children. And that really was, in my experience, representative of what a teacher's union does. In America, the, the police unions, what do the police unions really do in the United States? They protect cops who shot people uh, without probable cause. And so these unions, look, these unions are really vestiges in many respects of 30 and 40 years ago. And in the same way in which we're so good at innovating technologically and so good at innovating scientifically, I think that we need more people like Sarah Horowitz who are imagining what a labor movement should look like and how it should work in the 2020s. And that is not necessarily the good old boy labor right. it's re It's reassembling... Um workers in, in, a, in a different formulation, in a different equation from 19th or 20th century industrial labor. And I think she's absolutely right. I was thrilled that you, you referred to her because sometimes she's sort of portrayed as being a leftist uh, out of touch with reality. But I think the reverse is actually true. I think the reverse is true too, because what she's responding to, again, it may seem terribly boring, but it's really important. Things like the portability of benefits. Yeah. So that your, your benefits are not attached to a single employer. You know, one of the great mistakes of the United States is that beginning after the Second World War, we essentially individualized our social contract through our employers. So the fact that companies are now responsible for our health care, for our pensions and for other such things in a world of shareholder capitalism where they if they can if they can get rid of those, if, if they can get rid of those costs, they're going to. And so Sarah's very smart about understanding about how we need to think about how to, about how we need to make some of these benefits, how we need to have a welfare state detethered from our employers. Yeah, we should actually do a show with you and, and Sarah, maybe a couple of other experts on this, because it's all also about the future of work. You, as a, as a, a, a guy who spent spends all his time thinking about innovation. How, how does work itself, Alec, need to change? 
Well, I'll tell you, it's interesting. Here, let me tell you what I hope happens. What I hope happens is in the same way in which as we transitioned from an agricultural age to an industrial age, we went from having a six-day work week with an average work time anywhere from nine to 13 hours a day. So literally the, the number of hours that the sun was up to a five-day work week based in around eight hours a day. What I hope is that we can go to something more like a four-day work week. So that's where I hope we go. Uh, what I also hope, though, in terms of the future of work, one of the things that I think COVID really revealed was the degree to which the people who are moving atoms as opposed to bits or bytes are massively disadvantaged in the economy. So part of what we need to ensure is, and they, again, this goes to our business models, this goes to the form of capitalism that we have, we need to make sure that the people who are moving atoms, actual, you know, actual things, not just those people who are moving bits and bytes, computer code, are advantaged um, in tomorrow's economy. So we need to be we need to be thinking about our non-knowledge workers. Our knowledge workers are those who are going to get the Harvard Business School studies, and you know you're going to get you know figure out what the new cool benefits are. And God bless us knowledge workers. I'm a little bit wor more worried about the non-knowledge workers. Yeah, you have a wonderful, I really like the beginning of the book when you, when you said, the first thing I do this morning is make coffee. I roll out of bread, brew a pot and make breakfast. The kids, I'm leaving for a business trip today. So I pack my overnight bag and book a ride share to the airport. Um, and then you sort of unravel this narrative to show how new forms of labor and exploitation or injustice abound into uh, our everyday arrangement. Um, we had uh, we had um, Yanis Varoufakis, uh, the ex Greek foreign minister, economics minister, on the show. He has a new book out, um, another now imagining a, a post capitalist world. I'm sure you're familiar with Yanis. Um, you've probably been on panels with him around the world. He doesn't believe that capitalism has a future, Alec. You do, don't you? You think that capitalism can be reformed from within. So even if you refer to the Engels gap, you're not a Marxist in that sense. No, that's correct. And that's because I fundamentally believe that humans are inherently greedy animals. It's the way our brains work. We aren't ants. You know, if we were ants, um, then I believe that, you know, Marxist models of capital and labor could work. But part, a big reason why I believe that communism and most socialist models have failed is because of a lack of incentives. Humans are driven by incentives, whether it is for sex, whether it is for money, whether it is for power, whether it is for fame, we are driven uh, by these incentives. So from an economic standpoint, the big question for me is, if we recognize this aspect of our humanity, if we recognize that we are inherently greedy bastards and we want money, power, fame, sex. We want all the good stuff. You're a Hobbesian. You you're, you're definitely, uh, you definitely well, fall into the Hobbes camp, Alan. So, so how can we then organize ourselves in a way in which all of this works? So, don't, so to come back to Hobbes, um, don't we need to resurrect fear? That's what Hobbes believed the only way for us to see reason. He believed in all those things, but he also realized that we could be fearful. And in a world without a social contract, when we're with these mechanical objects hurtling into space, uh, the only way we would see reason and actually make agreements with other people is, is through the social contract. It's founded on fear. We've had other people on the show recently, actually. John Hagel, for example, my 
Bay Area neighbor who believes that we need to emancipate ourselves of fear. Is, is fear a good thing in this new world, Eric? No, it's a, it's a terrible thing. And because we have resurrected fear, how did Trump win? Trump won through a combination, because fear is a very powerful motivator. But the thing is, the American electoral system is so messed up. His making, again, sort of white, working class, middle class, emasculated men, fearful is enough for him to win the presidential election because the votes of black people, of brown people, and of younger people matter less because of how the American electoral system wins. Fear is an incredibly rational political strategy for the American right. It has worked. It is likely to work again. If you look at the electoral strategies of a, of a Duterte in the Philippines or a Bolsonaro in Brazil, Fear is at its core. It can be used from the right. It can be used from the left. But in the United States, it's an inherently bad thing because, because of the American electoral system, which advantages one type of voter in one place over another type of voter in another place. Your book, uh, The Raging Twenties, Companies, Countries, People, and the Fight for Our Future, begins in America and kind of ends in America. But it has, because of your internationalist uh, um, background and, and lifestyle it has lots of, of references to other systems, alternative systems that that might work. You used to be, uh, I think, uh, Hillary Clinton's innovation advisor. Um, and I, I remember a wonderful moment in the uh, debates between Sanders and, and, and Clinton when uh, Bernie Sanders says, I love Denmark. I, I want America to become like Denmark. And Hillary Clinton agrees that she loves it, but she said, we're not Denmark. In your book, Alec, I get the sense that you're probably more in the Bernie camp than the Hillary camp when it comes to um, emulating or at least copying in some senses other systems, particularly the Danish Scandinavian model. Is that fair? Well, what I would say is true is that Americans forget too often that we were born with one mouth and two ears. And I think that, you know, the time for us to sort of finger wag and tell the world how things should work um, is a less good idea than actually listening and learning from other societies that I actually think have a social contract that works much more effectively than ours. And you're right. In the raging 2020s, talking about labor, for example, I think the Mediterranean model, the model in Greece and Italy and Spain is complete crap. I think the labor model in the UK and the United States right now is crap. Where does it work well? in Southern, Central and Northern Europe. So I think we can learn a lot from that. It's also the case, it's, it's one thing that would surprise people, is there are actually more billionaires on a per capita basis in Nordic countries than in the United States because there's actually a lot of economic freedom. That's there's astonishing, a, I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't know there yeah. were any billionaires in, in, in Scandinavia. Isn't it fascinating? On a per capita basis, it's more than the United States. The difference is that they pay much higher taxes, and that in turn enables substantially more public investment and, and far greater uh, shared well-being. So they have, it's actually a very liberal in many respects, entrepreneurial environment wedded to a very strong safety net. And that's why the social contract works there. Another person we, we've had regularly on the show is Kishore uh, Mabubani, again, I'm sure is someone you've come across in your international travels, a guy who uh, I think is basically arguing that the Chinese system now is more viable and credible than the American system. 
you have lots of references to the Chinese model. You don't believe that it's viable in the long term, or you hope it isn't viable in the long term. Uh, is that fair, Alec? I think it's viable for the Chinese. I don't think it's viable for the non-Chinese. You know, it's this is a case where in order to understand the Chinese model, the Chinese economic and political model, you have to understand that there's zero history of democracy there. You know, you've got you've had of forms of authoritarianism for more than 2000 years there. It actually fits the culture quite well. So I think that it is a I think that it is a perfectly reasonable and long-term solution for China. I don't think that others should draw inspiration for it. In part because the ability of the Chinese state to organize itself across a vast territory with 1.3 billion people is far greater than in more diverse societies or in any society where any form of democratic consent is needed. The the book ends quite bleakly. You say that if nothing Uh changes, rage will be the defining quality of the 2020s. And and like so many books like this, you say basically it's up to us. The impact of of all this is going to be enormous. Are we going to get beyond the 19th and 20th century? You say it's up to us. As I said, uh, we had... um, Yanis Varoufakis on the show recently uh, with his science fiction, anti-capitalist, uh, I guess, utopia, another now. Um, let's end, uh, Alec, on another now for you. In 30 years, if we get it right, or two questions, if we get it right, what will the world look like? And if we do nothing, if we don't rewrite this social contract, what will the world look like? So if we get it right, then it will be the case. So right now, talent is universally distributed, but opportunity is not. If we get it right, then in 30 years, the ability to grow, the ability to achieve well-being will not be based on your last name. It will not be based on the postal code where you live. It will be more a function of, uh, do you work hard and play by the rules? If we don't get it right, if we don't get it right, it's going to look like Mad Max. Um, you know, this sort of hyper individualization with these localized strongmen. It's the future can look more like Star Trek or more more like Mad Max. And I do believe that the choice of whether it looks one way or the other is up to us. And I do choose to take an optimistic view of this. Going back to the Engels pause, the 1840s at the end of this period was a period of the the largest wave of revolutions in Europe's history. It was uh, a moment where new new ideologies emerged. The Communist Manifesto was written in 1848. And I do believe that we have the ability to see our way through this, but it is going to take boldness. And it, it is incrementalism is not going to work. It is going to take boldness. You're a, a, I wouldn't say a political hack, but very experienced mm-hmm. in politics. You work for Obama and Clinton. Uh, do you think it's fair to say that we need younger, more coherent politicians than Joe Biden, that Joe Biden is an example of the old world and that something profound has to change on the progressive side when it comes to politics if we are to get your positive vision of the future um, realized? Well, I'd say two things. I'd I'd say, first of all, that interesting, I've never heard of a politician doing this before, but Joe Biden identified, he self-identified as a transitional figure, which I thought was interesting. The second thing, and we'll see if it works or not, but what's interesting is Joe Biden, the president, has adopted the policies of many of the young progressives who you cite, Andrew. 
Um, it's interesting, you know, Lena Khan at the FTC, Tim Wu in the White House. If you look at the policies of a President Biden, not all of them, but a lot of them in areas like antitrust, they are the, the inspiration clearly comes from this new generation of progressive leaders as opposed to from the good old boy network of the United States Senate. The real question for Biden is going to be, can he get any of this done? Yeah, and uh, we, we started that. We started the show with Biden's entire presidential agenda rests on his expansive spending bill. We end on the same note. Um, Alec Ross's new book, The Raging 2020s, Companies, Countries, People, and the, fl and the Fight for Our Future. I was going to say flight, but fight for our future is appropriate, relevant, as always, uh, with Alec. Uh, in addition to the book, Alec, um, you're in Baltimore in these strange times, caught perhaps between Baltimore and Bologna. What else should people be reading to make sense of our, our age uh, manifested by the Engels Gap? So the book that I think is most instructive right now is Lampedusa's book, Il Gatto Pardo, The Leopard. Yes, and, and a wonderful film too. Uh, you know, it was written in the 1950s and it was written about 1860s Sicily, revolutionary Italy. And I swear to God, Andrew, when I read it this past summer, when I read, you know, I read it when I was in my 20s and it didn't leave much of a mark, probably because I was not mature enough intellectually because it touches on themes like death and what have you. But when I read it this summer, my goodness, it moved me. And I think it's incredibly instructive to help understand what it means to be a society in transition. And, and what does uh, Delepedusus, what, what's that, that really famous quote from the book about change? I can't remember. He said, in order for things to stay the same, everything must change. Perfect ending, Alec. Uh, pleasure as always. Uh, well, I, I think it'd be good to get you back on the show with Sarah Horowitz and perhaps Yanis. We can talk more broadly about a progressive, a coherent progressive agenda for the 2020s and 30s. Keep well. Congratulations on the new book, The Raging 2020s. I think it'll be a bestseller like uh, uh, your previous book, uh, Industries of the Future. And we'll talk again in the not too distant future. Thank you so much. Thank you, Andrew.